My father was a boat builder. He built a boathouse right alongside the house. And uh, he built boats and he had them lined up a whole block long. Welcome to Sounds Japanese-Canadian to me, the Marpo Monogatari, with me, Raymond Nakamura. This Nikkei National Museum podcast is made possible through support from the Yosef Wasp Publication Grant and the Vancouver Heritage Foundation. We acknowledge that this episode comes to you from the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples. In the early 20th century, Marpole became home to many Japanese-Canadian families, including those of David Suzuki and Joy Kogawa. In 1942, they, along with thousands of other Japanese-Canadians, were forced to relocate. In this episode, we explore how Japanese-Canadians made a living in pre-war Marpole. Marpole is in the southern part of Vancouver, British Columbia, with the Fraser River to the south, 57th Avenue to the north, Angus Drive on the west, and Ontario Street to the east, on the ancestral, traditional, and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples. Beginning in the late 1800s, people coming to Canada from Japan were not only limited by their English ability, but also systemic racism. In 1895, the British Columbia government added people of Japanese descent to the list of groups not allowed to vote, which already included Chinese and Indigenous people. This meant they were not allowed to work in certain professions, such as pharmacy or law. Even Japanese Canadians born in Canada could not find jobs outside their community, no matter how fluent their English or complete their qualifications. Arriving in a new country without personal connections can be a hazardous undertaking. Mio Ishiwata Ling grew up in Marpole with her parents, Hikotaro and Umeno Ishiwata. From an oral history taken in 1985, Mio talks about her parents coming to Canada and the general atmosphere at the time. Apparently, um, I guess the word got around that the, the couple were looking for somebody to come to Canada, you see his servants. And uh, I guess my father and mother thought there was an opportunity for them to come here. So that's how they tagged along. You know, really talked them into coming, talked my father and mother into coming as servants, you see, to Vancouver. Mm -hmm. So that's how they got here. But it was another thing when they got here. She said they were prisoners, literally prisoners in that house. They never received any salary. And she said that they came in their kimonos and, and they made them stay in the kimonos so that they couldn't leave the premises. And my mother had my brother then, I guess, when they first came. And she said that they wouldn't call a doctor until, I guess, the ninth hour. She, she said she nearly died because of the lack of their attention, I guess. And um, she said, I wonder what would have happened to us if the war didn't break up. The 1914 war broke up. Mm -hmm. and, and they fled to California. That was the last you heard of them. Because um, they were aliens. You see, enemy aliens at that mm -hmm. time. The Germans really got it in the first war. So they took off. And uh, my mother and father were free at last. 
she said, I don't know what would have happened if if the war didn't come. She said, maybe we'd still, she used to laugh and say, I guess we'd still be with them. She said they were terrible. They were really uh, uh, cruel, you know. They prohibited us from teaching and taking, uh, I guess, professional jobs. It wasn't too bad back east because uh, it wasn't like Vancouver. BC is very a, a discriminating place. I mean, even for business establishment, um, if, if um, say, a, a business establishment got too successful, then you'd find the whites jumping on the Orientals for some reason or other. The only profession that was open was the medical, I think, mm -hmm. because that was a little bit different again. I mean, you could work among your people, whereas um, teachers and lawyers and so on, accountants weren't allowed, you know, at all. Doors are closed. As with many other of the early Japanese-Canadian communities, Marpole initially formed around a major source of employment. Located on the banks of the Fraser River, the Eburn Sawmill began offering jobs in 1910, when Marpole was still known as Eburn. In the 1911 census, 10 of the 12 Japanese-Canadian entries listed sawmill as their source of income and laborer as their occupation. The other two laborers in that census listed CPR camp as their source of income probably building bridges for the Canadian Pacific Railway. After Eburn became a station for the interurban rail system, residents could travel further afield for work or pleasure. Sam Yamamoto moved to Marpole as a teenager in the late 1930s. Here he recalls the presence of the sawmill in the area. And then there was a big sawmill, Eburn sawmill. It's probably one of the largest at that time, I would say. Uh, sawmills, you know, yeah. about almost my two blocks, if I recall. It seems like a real huge sawmill. It was the largest sawmill anyway. I was in the lower mainland at that time, I think. Even sawmill was well known. Uh, there's always a sound of, of something, you know, buzzing sawmill. You go down Hudson Street, I can still remember that, yeah. You couldn't, I don't know, I can't remember smelling anything, but uh, certainly you remember the buzz of the sound of the saw running, yeah. I don't think any Japanese, Marco living in Japanese, I would live in Japanese, worked there. They were working in a smaller sawmills along the riverfront, you know, along the east of uh, Hudson Street, along the river. There were several sawmills there, you know. Alan Masayoshi Arima, known as Mush, grew up in Marple. As part of the Sedai video project in Toronto, he talked about the occupations of his father, Itaro Arima, his mother, Same Arima, and his two older sisters. My dad worked at BC Box Lumber Mill as a laborer. I'm told my dad was making around 15 cents an hour. In October of 1939, when I was eight years old, my dad, who was 52, was killed in an industrial accident at the lumber mill. I never really got to know my dad, and it was something I really missed growing up. For my mom, it was a difficult struggle to support the family with four kids. Mom worked briefly on Saturday mornings during the summer to do housework, but had to be accompanied by her eldest daughter, Takako, because she couldn't speak English. Both my sisters, Takako and Toshiko, 
and my sister is here, attended McGee High School during the day and after school stayed and worked the entire week with separate Hagujin families to do housework and returned home on the weekends and they were paid $5 a week. Here is Mio Ishiwanta Ling on working part-time while going to school. Yeah, I told you it's domestic work for the Malkins and Mr. Weir, I think he was the Attorney General in British Columbia at that time. See, we lived uh, on the border of Southwest Marine, Southwest, yeah, and that's where all the prominent people lived in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Another major source of employment were salmon canneries and associated occupations. The closest canneries were the Celtic cannery at the foot of Blenheim and the Acme and Vancouver canneries on nearby Sea Island. Over time, however, pressured by other fishing groups, the government began to restrict the number of fishing licenses available to Japanese Canadians. Here Sam Yamamoto talks about working with his father, who was a fisherman, and later getting his own job. I used to, uh, you know, help my father every summer, you know, but uh, we were never what you call a river fisherman. We were more out in the ocean, what you call it, you know, out in the Gulf. We didn't fish in the river itself. We were fishing in the mouth of the river and into the Gulf. But the group in Marple, the smaller boat, they only fished uh, uh, in the river itself. There were few fishermen around, you know, but I got to know just one family, really, the Nakagawas. Other than that, I didn't realize that there were more fishermen, but there were a couple of boat builders, if I recall. The fishermen that fished there were what we call river fishermen. Uh, their boats were smaller. My dad also, at one time, on the fish packer. In other words, they collected the fish at the Celtic cannery. And uh, whether the Marpo group took their fish to Celtic cannery or not, or there was a collector or not, I don't, I don't recall that. Uh, but um, this fish packer my dad and father owned uh, uh, transported the fish that was caught by the Celtic cannery group and the Marpo group as well, too, I guess, and transported to to Imperial Cannery in Steveston every evening. North Arm the Fraser to the South Arm of Fraser River. In other words, um, it's quite a distance. Really. Why Why would they take fish from one cannery to another cannery? Because they didn't have any canneries at all, you see, at that area. And, and the canneries that uh, we have, uh, they quit canning fish. It was much uh, probably convenient and probably more economical for BC Packers to have one major cannery in Stevenson. But that's, mind you, this is towards the start of the war, you know. In other words, uh, maybe 20 or 30 years before that, they probably used to can, can you know, salmon, stuff like that there as well, too. Yeah. So your father was running the, the packing boat while... Well, actually, no, he was a fisherman, but uh, he would hire a, um, a skipper or a captain, you want to call it, to, uh, to uh, for for about three months or so, or four months or so a year, to run this uh, fish packer. You see, yeah. my father had to hire somebody to operate, to run the fish packer from Celtic Cannery to Imperial Cannery. 
uh, to the point where uh, it wasn't too profitable. So uh, I think uh, soon after he started fishing, he sold the boat. Still retained the name Hiki, you know, H-I-K-I. And this is the village where my parents came from, in, from Japan. The village Hikigawa, they call it, and Makayamaki, yeah. Actually, I started working for Union Fish Company, Vancouver Fish Market, as soon as I finished high school, which means that, uh, you know, working for this fish country about a year and a half or so, my father passed away. You might say that uh, my association with the Japanese very limited to maybe a three or four families. Yeah. And mind you, I spent um, a couple of months, uh, weekends, taking orders for the Union Fish Company, but fish company, the company, that market that I work for, you know, Japanese orders, but that's a, to a limited time, only about five or six calls that I made, that's about it. Yeah. Not through the area where Japanese live, but you might say that the outside of Selkirk Street, up Oslo, few, but over on the east side of Oak Street, I think there's a street called Fremlin, Fremlin, I think, two, two blocks over. A new, new family had moved over from the two canneries, from the Vancouver cannery and Acme cannery. The families have moved, also moved over, getting away from the tuberculosis, uh, you know, uh, scare, you want to call it. Yeah. And so there were new families living in that area as well, too. So, but my association really was salespeople that worked uh, in the Union Fish Market, the Union Fish Company in Powell Street, 469 Powell Street, I still remember the name, uh, address. Yeah, yeah. They had their boarding house, shall we say, that had the um, families living there, uh, yeah, sales person and also to the store clerk. They're living there, right? near the store. Actually, it's across the street from, oh, I forgot the name of the street. Yeah, it's just half a block away, shall we say, yeah. But I myself uh, board a room, you know, room and board at the at this uh, lodging, you want to call it, uh, near uh, the fish market. There's a, there was really about half a dozen workers that stayed there, plus uh, the manager uh, of this store also stayed there. Yeah. Minimum wage we got actually um, very low, but then that included the room and board as well. So, yeah. When you were working for the Union Fish Company, uh, do you recall there being other Japanese food competitors in Marpole? Well, there was a Nishimura, uh, but uh, no, they would they would not be competitors. No, no, no I would say no. No. Well, there was a little fish cannery the Higgles used to run, and besides Nishimura, but you wouldn't say that the the um, product that the Union Fish Company handled. They imported a lot of stuff from, directly from Japan. You know. Yeah, uh, and uh, even the rice came from Japan. And, and the Union Fish, where I worked, uh, the rice would come, and uh, I, I think um, we used to brown rice, but uh, 
uh, you had to polish that rice. Uh, so Union Fish Company at the back there had this equipment machine to uh, polish the rice. Would the rice be delivered? To the oh yeah, yeah. They all, all they probably could deliver. Damn. Uh, in my case, man, I brought them home, mind you, you know. But then, when they ordered the sacks of rice and stuff like that, a tub of uh, shoyu, you know, they delivered that. In fact, I spent one summer when I first started with Union Fish Company. Uh, I, I helped deliver all this stuff. Uh, I would say it was the largest Japanese goods store. Car Suzuki grew up in Marpole, as did his son, environmentalist and broadcaster David Suzuki. In an oral history from 1983, Carr talks about his father, Sentaro Suzuki, and his mother, Shika Suzuki, who were some of the earliest Japanese-Canadian settlers in Marpole. Uh, I was born, born in Eburn, used to be called Mar. well, after it became Marpole. Grew up there, and my father was a boat builder. He built a boathouse right alongside the house, and uh, he built boats, and he had them lined up a whole block long. And then uh, I went to school. He was a carpenter in Japan. No, you know, my his father died. My you know, my grandfather died when my father was 12 years old. So you see, he didn't even get an education. He went to work for his uncle, his mother's brother. And he served his apprenticeship in carpentry, woodworking. So he was a real good carpenter. So, so when my brothers got into boat building, he was able to, he did, he did all the windows and everything, you know, and they're all not square in a boat, they're all slanted. And he was, and he, do the inside, all the lining in the inside, he can just look at it and cut it and fit. Yeah. He was that good carpenter. Sentaro Suzuki started a boat works on Anasis Island. He bought it from a different Suzuki who had decided to return to Japan. Sentaro was happy he didn't have to make a new sign. Three of his sons, Shuji, Minoru, and Masaru, helped with the carpentry while the youngest son, George, fed the furnace box that made the steam to shape the planks. After the three sons took over the business, they renamed it Moreno Boatworks. So the first job that I worked was a, a gardener's, you know, gardener and And then, uh, because I could speak English, I was put in charge because I could talk to the owners of the gardeners. A bunch of Japanese working under him because of the fact that I can speak Japanese, I didn't know anything about gardening, but you speak to the owner and uh, he'll tell you what to do. Then uh, at that time, uh, I got a call to work in Furia's store, you know, Furia importing. And then uh, because I could speak English, I was put in charge of the store part. So in, in, in a short time, I became manager of the store, the retail. Then I got married, so I was a dry cleaner until the time of evacuation, until the war started. Well, my mother, uh, well, see, we were very poor, and uh, she went as uh, worked well. For, at first, we kept a lot of chickens. That kept big as after school, we'd run home, change my clothes, work in the, you know, look after the chickens. Yeah? Gardening to do, to grow these vegetables, to feed the chicken. 
And uh, my father wasn't very strong, so he never worked steady. So uh, mother raised chickens, and that's what got us by. Then uh, she got to know this Hagujin, fairly wealthy English family, and so she went there as a housewife. She was there for quite a few years. Miyo Ishiwata-ling knew the Suzukis. Here she recalls a conversation with Car Suzuki about their chickens. Uh, Suzuki, David Suzuki's family, uh, they did a little bit of, of uh, farming and, and they raised chicken. I know, I, I talked to David's father and he used to laugh about it. He said, he said they used to call us uh, uh, chicken farmers because he said I guess we smell like chicken they, they they practically I guess the whole family was into it at that time and he said they felt so self-conscious you know for many many years because that was about all they they, they could do you know or else go fishing those are the two sources of employment my father was a gardener a number of Japanese Canadians in Marpole worked as gardeners here is Esther Matsubuchi, who lived in Marpole as a young girl, talking about her father, Junichi Tsunohara. My dad was the private gardener of the E.E. E. Buckerfield Seed Company man. And he worked there all, all year round. And my mom worked, helped in the house. Here is Mio Ishiwata-ling talking about her father, Hikotaro Ishiwata, who was employed as a gardener by Mr. A.L. Wright. My father was a gardener who uh, tended to, um, to gardens in Carisdale area, Carisdale and Shaughnessy, in big families. He loved to travel too. He went in the opposite direction. He went down to the United States. He had friends drop in from New York, and he was greatly uh, taken by what they told him in the States. It was really, uh, I guess, they were having a boom down there, and they said, what are you doing here, because the wages are terrible here, and they said, you could make ten times more in New York, and my mother became alarmed because it's right for uh, you know, a breadwinner to take a little trip. But when, when he got down there, he decided to stay there. And my mother, he was all means to contact immigration to have him brought back because he wasn't going to come back. He said things were just booming down there. I mean, he said, well, those were in the 30s, eh, just before the war. Uh, wages were 10 times to what they were here. And he said that people lived like kings down there. and. Uh, I guess money was flowing easily, and even though it was a depression, the, their standard was much higher, I guess. And, uh, oh yeah, my mother at one point got very, uh, you know, incited, and she, she told the authorities that if he didn't uh, bring him back, he, he, he would go into hiding. So he was brought back. He was brought back? Oh, he, well, I, I mean, I, I don't I don't say that he fought with them, but I think he was being elusive and uh, mm -hmm. he was supposed to be back. You know, they they got a certain date, expired date, they have to be back by. And he, the days passed by and he, he just thought he was going to stay down there. He thought, he didn't mean that um, 
to, to ignore us. Uh, he thought that if he could make enough money, he would keep sending the money to us. Say, this, this was his idea, mm -hmm. that he would send the funds to us and uh, he could just stay there, down there. But uh, my mother got frightened because she thought maybe eventually he would just quit sending the money. Mm -hmm. So she made sure that he got back. But um, I think my father tended to live in the world of fantasy sometimes because I know uh, even after he came back, he kept saying, oh, he said, I wish I could go back to the States. He was really taken by the way they lived down there. Liz Nunoda's grandfather, Soichi Nunoda, and her grandmother, Sue Nunoda, lived on 70th Avenue in Marpole, but ran the Powell Bakery on Powell Street. Her father, Arthur Asao Nunoda, also worked there. Here is Liz talking about their business. The only thing I remember my dad telling me about working at the bakery was that um, his mom used to go down at midnight and I guess my grandpa was down there too. And they'd start baking like bread and cookies and all that so that everything would be ready in the morning. And I guess he would go there later in the morning to clerk, I think, to, to help sell stuff. And he said he used to take the interurban uh, from Marple down to Powell Street, or maybe it was down Granville Street. I don't know what street it went down. I think they had an automobile plus a delivery truck so I assume they drove down. I remember him telling a kind of a colorful story about there was this Nisei guy who was working for them for a little while as a delivery man. And so he'd go out in the delivery truck. But my grandpa found out that this Nisei guy was selling men's suits out of the, delivery, the bakery delivery truck or something on the side. So I guess they fired him. So. Laura Fukumoto's grandfather, Fujio Fukumoto, grew up in Marpole with four siblings and her great-grandparents, Toyomon and Umechio Fukumoto. Toyomon was a sawmill worker for the Sawarn Lumber Company. Her grandfather, Fujio, was listed as a store clerk with the BC Purchasers Association on documents from 1942. Later, however, he became estranged from his wife, Kiyo, and here, Laura describes an example of trying to find out what he actually did for a living. The, the picture is of a man in a clothing department store, um, and I was like, you know, hey, Grandma, who's this person who's in a clothing department store? And she's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but I asked my sister about it because I was like, well, I have this feeling. Um, so this is when I was visiting Toronto. Um, and so I, you know, was out with my sister. And we were catching up and I showed her this photo and she said, oh, well, didn't our grandfather work in like garment imports or like textiles or something? And I was like, I don't know. How do you know that? <laughs> you know, so it's, you know, we, we're all just working with these tiny, tiny little snippets. And um, like, she doesn't know how she knows that or why, you know, why that might be a piece of information she picked up somewhere. Um, but yeah, there's this, there's this photo of a man standing in front of some women's coats in some kind of department store. And he looks an awful lot like my dad. <laughs> 
So I don't know. I'll ask my dad about it one day. We'll see. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this brief look at some of the occupations of Japanese Canadians living in Marpol before 1942. When they were forcibly uprooted from their homes, they not only lost their livelihoods, but also their investments in time, effort, and resources. Thanks to those who shared their stories and comments for this episode. Alan Masayoshi Mush Arima, Kar Suzuki, Esther Matsubuchi, Laura Fukumoto, Liz Nunoda, Mio Ishiwata-Ling, and Sam Yamamoto. Research by Linda Kawamoto-Reed. Editing and original music by Itamar Sipon. Supported by the Tech Nation Career Ready Program. Thanks to Sue Bielli, Robert Wamet, Roland Tanglau, and others of the Digital Ladders team who helped us pivot a walking tour into a podcast. Raymond Nakamura was the writer and host. If you have any stories about Japanese Canadians to add to the Marpol Monogatari, we would love to hear them. And don't forget to tell your real and virtual friends about the Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me podcast by sharing it on social media. <laughs>